I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Saturday School. This is our seventh season. To those who wondered if there were even enough films, there you go. Oh, I know, right? So for those of you who are joining us for the first time, hi. (laughs) (laughs) This is our Asian American pop culture history podcast. We divide it into seasons slash semesters. We started with Asian American comedies. Then we did Asian Americans in Love to do the romance. And this was all before Crazy Rich Asians. Head of the game. (laughs) Or rather, Asian American cinema had been doing this for a very long time. Right, right. Yeah. What do we do next? We did Troublemakers. Troublemakers. We did Asian American music movies, musicals. And I love like all four of those were not genres that you would expect from Asian Americans. Yeah. Like, the whole idea behind this is to not only say, oh, there's been an Asian American comedy before, but it's like there have been at least 10 and we're going to talk about them and 10 that do it in a different way. Yeah, there have been enough that when we pick a top 10, we're leaving a lot out and we're trying to pick the best one and the best combination as if we are professors, which at the time, neither of us were. Now <laughs> one of us is, so that helps. And then the last two seasons I thought were really fun too. So the fifth season was around the time when Crazy Rich Asians came out. So we decided to look at Asian Americans in Asia because Crazy Rich Asians is kind of an Asian American film, kind of a Singaporean film. And it, and it had people asking the question like, why are we celebrating this movie that's not even set in the U.S.? And we're like, well, there's actually a long tradition of this. Yeah, and I had Singaporeans going like, why are you making a film about us that's just a Chinese-American film? Yeah, yeah. and that is not new either. Yeah, and then last season was fun because from the beginning we had been looking at purely Asian-American films because that's kind of like our background as journalists and programmers and now professors. At the same time, we had always been covering Asian films as well. So last semester, we flipped it and we looked at Asian films about Asian America, sort of as a reminder that it's not just like Hollywood representing us a certain way versus Asian Americans telling our own stories. But when we go back to the motherland, they have certain impressions of us too, that sometimes do not match with any of these narratives. And it's sort of like, if we're going to be distorted, at least we'll watch the distortions that make us look cooler than we actually are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> In the middle of that season, COVID happened. Well, we had recorded most of that season beforehand, but by the time we were releasing them, COVID happened. So we were kind of pivoting to all the things that were happening all around us. And then, of course, since that season concluded, a lot more things have happened in the American landscape. Um, namely, and I think very importantly, discussions around race have reemerged, but also issues of solidarity. And to the point of like, we're starting to wonder, like, what is the point of Asian American community building? Are there ways in which Asian American community building can be in the service of social justice that doesn't just serve Asian Americans? So, for instance, after the Breonna Taylor, George Floyd murders, how can this category of Asian America be activated in the service for Black lives? 
And that sparked, I think, really important conversations. I mean, like, for instance, is Asian American cinema best served just doing comedies or comedies that are just to kind of talk about Asian American identity? Is that sufficient? And I, I don't want to say yes or no, but at the very least, it has us wondering, well, are there films directed by Asian Americans that are not just about Asian American stories, but that still include Asian American stories within the context of larger racial formations that are happening in the U.S.? And hence, the season. Yeah, because a lot of times you think, is it about Asian Americans or is it not about Asian Americans? Sometimes you'll see a director like M. Night Shyamalan, who mostly directs films that are not about Asian Americans. Yeah, or Greg Araki, Chloe Zhao, and we're not knocking them. So there's that going on, where Asian Americans make stories that are not about Asian Americans. And then, of course, when you go to Asian American film festivals, you watch Asian American films. And it's funny, like, you watch these movies and you're thinking, everybody in this movie is Asian, <laughs> right? Unless it's an Asian American woman dating a guy that is not Asian American, and their parents don't approve. <laughs> We've seen a lot of that, too. And it's like, does the Asian American universe only contain Asian people? And obviously, that's not true either. Um, that's not representative of the actual stories. But are there other ways for Asian American cinema to be interracial, beyond just interracial romances? And, well, as it turns out, there's a whole history of this. And perhaps we'll go even further to argue that the advent of Asian American cinema altogether, Asian American cinema was created out of a spirit of working with other non-white groups to further social justice issues, um, including today's film. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, like most things, while it feels new, and there are definitely modern twists on all of the situations we're going through now, there is a history, and often a very long history, that is often forgotten. And it's a history that like reminds us we don't have to feel like we're inventing something right now. Because that's a very lonely and sometimes alienating prospect to say we have to just now completely transform the terms of Asian America. No, like we've done this before and let's see how it's done. And it won't directly apply to what's going on now, but there's a lot that we can take from it. Yeah. So we're calling the season Asian American Interracial Cinema. So the title kind of contains a contradiction. How can it be both Asian American and interracial at the same time? And hopefully every episode here will explore those tensions. And we kind of like this idea that when you think of the word interracial, you think of romance, interracial romances. And that's part of the season too. We're looking at relationships. It's not going to all be romantic relationships, but how are we navigating these relationships between different cultures in good ways and bad ways? Yeah. We don't want to pretend that Asian Americans have always been good at this solidarity stuff. Because we have not been. <laughs> and we continue to not be. Yeah. But also, like, but there are ways in which we have always been good at it. Yeah. And we've always had our ear to the ground on that we should do it. And I think that's encouraging. Yeah, definitely. And that brings us to the film that we're talking about for this episode. So today we're going to be talking about a documentary called Mississippi Triangle from 1983. It's directed by Christine Choi, Worth Long, and Alan Siegel. And it's a production of Third World Newsreel. I think immediately when we wanted to do a season on this, it was clear we had to have a Christine Choi film. She's best known for being one of the directors of Who Killed Nathan Chin, which is a kind of an iconic Asian American story. 
But if you look at her career, she has done so much more than tell Asian American experience. For instance, one of her films is called Inside Woman Inside, and it's just a documentary interviewing black women in prisons. This is in the 1970s. That was also a production of Third World Newsreel. And as the name Third World Newsreel suggests, this is a collective of filmmakers of color who decided, you know, we need to collectively tell each other's stories in order to help all of us um, as kind of people of the third world. Like that's very kind of 1970s parlance. But the spirit was, you know, that's pretty exciting. Even to today, like this doesn't really exist today. And Christine Choi is one of the pioneers in all of this and also just a fantastic filmmaker. So we decided to talk about Mississippi Triangle, which is, as the title suggests, about Mississippi. But it's the triangle, the triangulation of race in Mississippi between Black, white, and Chinese people. So when you think about stereotypes of where Chinese Americans and I guess Asian Americans in general are, you often think like the coastal cities, right? San Francisco, LA, New York. But in Mississippi, there's been a Chinese population there since like the late 1800s. And the documentary kind of goes into that. It explains that the first Chinese settlers were laborers recruited by cotton planters. So they're working alongside the black population in the cotton plantations. But then soon they became the people who owned the grocery stores. Yes. I mean, sort of the tragedy of it in which we watch play out is that, yeah, in the beginning, the Chinese were kind of in the fields with the newly freed slaves. But at some point, you see that the Chinese people were able to own their own businesses. Whereas you don't really see that happening with the black community. And so the film does this history of both communities kind of in tandem and where they end up by the 1980s and how their experiences differ on things like schools, for instance. I mean, they, they talk a lot about segregated schools. There's white schools, black schools. And then where do the Chinese people go? Like, do they count as white? Do they count as black? What are the terms in which they become defined? And most insidiously, and this is the, basically the history of the United States, it's sort of like the Chinese people are used to make sure that the black community stays in their place. The dreaded notion of Asian Americans as the wedge group. And they interview a lot of people who went through this. I mean, this is the 1980s. So a lot of these folks who experienced this in the like 1920s are still alive and can talk about how Asian Americans were racialized as black during that period. But at the same time, like the black community didn't really know what to do with the Chinese either. Yeah. So there's issues of schooling, but also of relationships. Can the Chinese people intermarry? And then at some point, the law in Mississippi says, no, if you're Chinese, you can't marry a white person. And the ways that like these Chinese men who often were not allowed to have Chinese women there because of the laws in the, in the U.S., they ended up marrying black women and how mixed race Chinese black folks were considered taboo, even in the Chinese community. And it's a, it's a tragedy of race and how it impacted a unexpected Chinese population. A lot of times the reason that the Chinese women weren't there was because this was all kind of still during the time of the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? So there would be Chinese men here that came to America to work, but it was very hard for them to bring their families here because the United States didn't want the Chinese immigrants to be able to stay here. And if they allowed the families to come here, then they would stay, right? Yeah. And also, yeah, this, there was a stereotype of Chinese women as being prostitutes. Like this is the age old notion in the West of the sexualization of Asian women. And so they were afraid that if you allowed Asian women to come, that they would become prostitutes. And that's bringing down society or something, all contributing to this idea that these Chinese men couldn't marry their own. So that, that's 
sort of the topic here. And that's the history that the film is interested in. And their approach is by interviewing folks who either live that history or also younger people, a newer generation, especially of Chinese Americans who grew up in Mississippi, and kind of how they see themselves now. So you definitely see how, yeah, in the beginning, the Chinese face a lot of racism. And it's not that they don't continue to face racism, but they sort of have taken advantage of a perception that Asians are near white. So you have certain young Chinese people who are trying to live a white lifestyle. And there's other Chinese people who like they're friends with their black neighbors or their black classmates. So there's also that tension within Chinese America. Now what I do, what I done and is something different, you see. But I'm still Chinese. So here's the interesting thing about the production of this film. So it's directed, as you mentioned, by Christine Choi, Worth Long, and Alan Siegel. So Christine Choi is Asian American, Worth Long is black, and Alan Siegel is white. Ah, and what they did was... I did not know that, but I was definitely <laughs> curious. They actually had each filmmaker interview, quote, unquote, their community. Wow. Because Interesting. I know this is so fascinating. But it's so brilliant, I think. So brilliant. And Christine Choi is the mastermind behind all of this. She's oh my God. credited as the producer and project director. Because you tell people stuff exactly. <laughs> that you won't tell. They say things in the film, right? Like Now that I think about the film, I'm like, yeah, like those white people were talking like that because they thought they were just talking to other white people. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. A brilliant move. And you're able also to get Chinese people on the screen. Oh, for sure, yeah. Kind of confessing that, well, you know, right? Chinese people tend to dot, 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 like in in terms of their anti-blackness. Yeah. I don't think they would admit that in front of a black director. No. And they also have an interview with Unita Blackwell, who is like the first black female mayor in Mississippi, I think, is what they said. And she, too, talks about, I mean, just sort of like off the cuff, it's sort of an innocent comment, just how, like, we don't understand the Chinese people at all. Interesting people because they was, they would treat you nicer than the whites. And, uh, you know, that's what we could, I could recognize, that they would talk to you nicer, you know, and just stand and hold your conversations. Uh, and we thought it was interesting because they talked funny. And then they would go, you know, hing on, song kong yon. And then you sit, look around at them, you know, and you didn't know what they were talking about. And then she has this really interesting aside where she says, we don't know what happens when they die. Yeah, that was weird. They get to be old, old people and they would wonder what happened to them. You know, never heard of Chinese films. Can we can we go through a lot of more of this stuff? Because I feel like I have tons of notes on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, go, go ahead, go ahead. You have like the white lady being like, um, Chinese people, they, you know, they just keep to themselves. If I go into a... Chinese grocery store, It's uh, it seems to me that the faces are always closed, completely closed. There's never any human interchange. They're just so inscrutable. She literally <laughs> says their faces are completely closed. Like, what a fascinating way of thinking about it. Like, just from their face, I can tell that they're not expressing anything to me. Which I wonder, is that a comment on eyes or, or whatever it is? Well, clearly, like, this is notion, yeah, inscrutable Asian. Yeah. There's that one Chinese woman who's a mother that can't even say the words interracial relationship without like just fumbling and just being like, it's like, like some sort of wires in her brain cross. Interracial marriage is when a person, when Chinese, when one, to me, interracial marriage is 
and when two different uh and she's just like i don't think my daughter would ever marry a black guy <laughs> like there's just, just i don't think that would happen personally i think that chinese people tend to hmm, you put me on the spot <laughs> but i one of the places that the one of the parts that i really loved was that <laughs> what you hear Christine, now I know it's Christine Choi, asked this Chinese man, like, well, did you ever, like, march during the civil rights movement? Did you ever march with the black? And he was like... Why didn't we get out and march? And Well, I, I, the, I guess the best, word, best answer is that I'm a coward. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, there's something sort of, like, nice about, like, he admits it, right? Like, look, like, I, you know, <laughs> like... It's honest and yeah, it's refreshing. Yeah. And it's like, we don't have to pretend that we're with it. When we're not. Yeah. <laughs> or in this case, he's not. Yeah. I think he's also the one who's like, yeah, I'm not going to send my kids to the public schools. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a discussion about when you're talking about what schools you send your kids to. Right. They talk about, quote, unquote, quality education, but we really know what that means. They don't want their kids to go to schools with lower income people. Yeah, and they want segregation. That's basically it. And honestly, like... There's certain parts of this movie from 1983 that feel very dated, right? As it should, because we're watching a movie that's from like 40 years ago, right? There are other parts of the movie that seem very current. (laughs) (laughs) You still have these like school districts that are quote unquote quality education, but who gets to get that quality education, right? Absolutely. It's not segregation in the same way, but... It has the same effect. Yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff where... I mean, I think people won't say it as bluntly because we've learned not to be outwardly racist. Most of us have. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's still a lot like, you know, racism in Asian American communities still running strong. Yep. Just these questions too, like like you said, being a wedge. Like where do we fit into this discussion when we're talking about Black Lives Matter? It's often like Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter which is associated with whiteness, right? It's this idea of like, where are we? These tensions, I feel like they're still there and strong and stuff that we need to negotiate. And it's tough, right? Like, especially this summer, a lot of Asian Americans have felt like they had to choose a side. But what I love about Mississippi Triangle is it, it proposes a different possibility. Like, it's called Triangle. In this film, race is not binary. It's not just about black and white. Like, there is another side to this shape. It's a triangle. And so it's sort of like Asian Americans don't just pick a side and remain invisible in the side that they've chosen. In this case, they have a seat at the table. There are three stories to be told here. And that Christine Choi is one of three filmmakers. It's not like she is supporting one of those stories or not. So it's about Asian American agency within the very important exploration of how do we think about race in the United States. It's not denying Asian American agency, which I think a lot of Asian Americans have wondered about this summer. Right. Like if the most important thing is Black Lives Matter, and it surely is, does that mean that we are silenced? We're not allowed to talk about our own experiences anymore. If this film is saying we could do all that at the same time, we could talk about our experiences because our histories also elucidate why black communities in the United States and especially places like Mississippi continue to be very, very unfair. Yeah. And that Asian Americans have the agency to be complicit. And that's a choice that some have made and continue to make. And it's worth talking about and giving them a microphone to to basically admit to all this. Yeah. And I think there's both. I think we started with the really cringy stuff because... 
because that's there. But you also see that the solidarity has also been there the entire time. You know, you see like the different communities intermingling in a grocery store. Thank you. Oh, you come back. All right. You know I come in here all the time. Oh, I do know. You see like different interracial relationships forming and you see like people making choices to not be racist, to be anti-racist before people knew what that term was. Yeah, I mean, I will say the film doesn't have many of those moments. I think it's because of the way that the filmmakers have decided to split the work up, like, oh, I'm going to tell the white story, I'm going to tell the black story, I'm going to tell the Asian story, that there's not a whole lot of commingling. But when there is, it's so powerful to watch. Like those scenes you're mentioning in the grocery store, for instance. Mm. I was most moved by the scenes of the teenager, um, this like Chinese teenager who... I mean, she talks about how like she basically doesn't have a life outside of her dad's grocery store. She has a lot of black friends, it's like black guys who she, she may or may not be interested in. But she basically admits on screen, even to everybody around, like, I can't do this. Your people don't want you to be seen with me. The Why way, do you think that? The way you act, your attitude. See, my people, you know, they think that blacks shouldn't belong with Chinese people. My people want me to marry some of my own color so that, uh, you know, we have our own color because of the blood. You shouldn't mix the blood up. I don't have anything against you. I don't have anything against any color. And I was raised around black people. I'm not going to turn against black people because but my people told me not to. I have my own life to live. But the really powerful part to me is that she thinks, I'm going to go to college one day and then I'll be away from all of this. Maybe there's like a place where Asian and black folks can like not worry about all of this like anti-blackness in the Asian community. Yeah. And so it's like thinking towards other possibilities. Like no one's teaching her this. She's just finding it on her own, like literally by herself. The Chinese community isn't encouraging it for sure. Yeah, because I think the older generation in that film, they see the hierarchy, right? And it's hard to blame them for seeing it this way because that's just it seems like it's their reality in that moment you know in some of the interviews with that generation it's like look like the white people have the power right and the black people don't so it's like if you're aspiring to something you're really aspiring to that like white status right right rightly or wrongly rightly or wrongly yeah um there was actually did you see there's like an npr story about the chinese community from the mississippi delta I think it was like in 2017 or something that was kind of about these similar issues. They had interviewed a Chinese-American from Mississippi who had talked about how his father had basically like become successful enough in their grocery store to buy a house because they used to all just live in the grocery store on top of the grocery store. So there was this idea that he could buy a house where like the white people live, but then the white people didn't want them there. (laughs) So I think that's kind of, you know, that's what they had to navigate at that time, right? Like, And it's the myth that you've somehow transcended your racialization. Yeah. So you want to talk about the Whiskey Woman and Guns guy? Yeah, okay, so there's this guy who talks about, you know, Mississippi, it's all whiskey, women, and guns. (laughs) Or whiskey, guns, and women. (laughs) And his conclusion from this is, I'm going to get me a gun. (laughs) (laughs) He's already got himself some women, though, I think, right? (laughs) I dated Chinese girls because I was expected to. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) And he was sort of insinuating, like, you know, I'm not like 
that, but I didn't know if he was like dating white women or if he was dating black women. Like I just didn't really know where this conversation was going to be land. Yeah, which yeah. is fine. I, I mean, I feel like I just found him entertaining. <laughs> I mean, that's fairly innocuous, right? Like, yeah, you're buying into a certain kind of culture, but at the end of the day, that's different than which side of capitalism are you on? Are you an exploiter or you're the exploited? Like a lot of these Chinese Americans are like, I'd rather be an exploiter. Right. And you, you see the way that like social mobility is to some extent open to Chinese Americans. Like they can have these businesses. They have the ability to say, I don't, I don't want to work in the cotton fields anymore. Whereas in the end of the film, you still see black people working in the cotton fields. I think this was in the beginning of the film. They say slavery is over, but this is just another way they're keeping slavery alive by not giving them any options to leave. Right. So the fact that a lot of these Chinese Americans have that option, that's privilege. Wait, okay, so I think I didn't quite get this. So there's that older lady, she's like in her 80s. And I think you don't really know in the beginning what race she is, do you, right? Yeah, we gotta talk about her. She's black and Chinese. You could feel that it's taboo to acknowledge that she is part Chinese or part black, like within their own communities. She comes up as an unplaceable person within this matrix of Asian, black and white. They're talking about like that she won't be able to be buried. Okay, yeah, this is incredible. Her name is Arlie Hen. So like, I, I think she, at this point she was known in the community. She's been written about even outside of this film as just an unusual character in history that also tells us a lot about how race works in the U.S. But the Chinese community was apparently not happy that Christine Choi wanted to interview her. Really? Oh. Yeah. And but Christine Choi probably realizes, no, this is critical. If we're going to tell this story, her case tells us a lot about how the Chinese community sees the black community, how the black community sees the Chinese community. Because the Chinese community is ashamed that there's intermixing going on. Because the Chinese community is starting to feel like they've moved beyond blackness. Like they feel like they've become close to white or something. And so someone like her like, is a reminder of a different time when Chinese and Black were actually hand in hand. So people just knew about her as somebody who was biracial. So Christine Choi, I guess the Chinese community were like, okay, talking to Christine Choi as long as she doesn't talk to Arlene. So Christine Choi had to pretend that they were leaving the city. And then they'd be like, all right, goodbye. And then she came back secretly Whoa. to interview her the next day. Like, like, so it was totally under the radar. Like, so, so that's in some ways like a heroic act of filmmaking. But really what's important about this, it speaks directly to even to today, even to the 1980s, the Chinese community is, that's how strong the anti-blackness is. Oh, for sure. Not surprised about that at all. And in fact, when the Chinese community watched the film, they were pissed that she was in the movie. Really? Wow. Yeah. She shows up pretty early. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's she's, she's a critical character. Yeah, she's probably like the second interview. So Christine Choi must have been like, well, gonna might as well piss them off, right? <laughs> well, anybody who knows Christine Choi knows she does not like nobody stands in her way. So at, you mentioned at the end of this movie, it seems like it's turning into a funeral. And it's really weird. Like she's just sick, but like you have a priest come over and it looks like they're reading her, her last rites or something. So we don't really know. And that actually reminded me back to the quote by Unetta Blackwell, the black mayor, who said, I don't know how Chinese people die. So for the film to end by saying like, well, this is how they die. And also like, it makes you wonder like, what do we mourn? How do we mourn? 
when somebody from that generation passes? Like, what are we losing? As the decades go on and as these Chinese folks become seemingly upward mobile and wanting to forget about their past where they were put together with the black community because they were all black in the eyes of white people, that we've forgotten how to remember those members of our history. Yeah, because I don't even think you said it directly, but the quote on screen is basically saying that she won't be able to be buried in the Chinese cemeteries because she's part black. Yeah, I think she said it twice. It's such an eerie end, and that's how this movie ends. Yeah, cut to credits. Yeah, and so to me it's about how do we bury the past, but without forgetting it. And under whose terms is this memory going to last? Like the fact that she can't be buried in a Chinese cemetery says a lot about how the Chinese want to remember their histories. Ending the film there, it's like we're in 2020. And it's a reminder to 2020 that it's important to look into history because we need to know where we've buried our bodies. In some ways, we're also responsible for the deaths. Where have we been complicit as a community and where can we do much better? And when, when is it like just visually, cinematically thrilling to see other versions of Asian Americans than just the ones that are thinking they're white or that are insular? That's what this film suggests is a possibility. That's what we want to explore this season. Yeah. What? This Chinese girl told me that she doesn't trust them. She don't like black kids. She said they don't go with her color because they think they'll steal things. But I don't think like that. I I just think like any colored people's my friend just as long as they get along with me. So I mentioned that this film is a production of Third World Newsreel. And Third World Newsreel is still around. They do amazing work doing distribution. They have a catalog of films that are as important as any other American film. And yet people don't really know about them. But I've noticed that in the last few months, they've started to put some of these films on VOD. And completely coincidentally, they're going to release Mississippi Triangle right now. So if you want to see this film, you definitely should, while you have the chance, because we don't know how long this is going to be available. And it's certainly not available commercially on like DVD or something, or it's not on Netflix. Check out this film. Uh, it's pretty eye-opening. And and moving. Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that feature stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our logo is by Grace Tallis Lee. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. Check out our website at SaturdaySchoolPodcast.com or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is Wake Up Sat School. Class dismissed. Let me see if there's any other... I love that shot of the back of the grocery store, all the Chinese people are playing mahjong. Oh my gosh, that is the best. Yeah. Yeah. They're just all in the aisles of the grocery store. It's sort of like, uh, yeah, on our day off, when the doors are closed, <laughs> the mahjong comes out. 
And then there's, I like that one thing that the white lady said was she heard that like Chinese people use the checks from white people to gamble with. I don't know if this is story. This is true or not. But this is the story that the uh, Chinese men would play poker using the white people's checks as stakes. <laughs> but it's sort of like, are you just stereotyping us? At the same time, it's like, nah, it's probably true. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's a good story. <laughs> Hi, I'm Marvin. And I'm Rira. We're the host of Books and Boba, a book club and podcast dedicated to books by Asian and Asian American authors. Every month we pick a book by an Asian author to read and discuss on the show. We read a wide variety of genres from contemporary to historical fiction, fantasy to memoirs, and crime thrillers to romance. Some of our past book club picks are Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, Sorcerer to the Crown by Zen Cho, and Devotion of Suspect X by Keigo Higashino. We also go over what's new in the Asian American literary world and chat with some talented Asian authors about their work. So whether you want to start reading for fun again or diversify your TBR list, we got your Asian literature cravings covered. For more info, check out our website at booksandboba.com. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.